0: The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. I'm hoping that you had the opportunity to, you took the opportunity uh, to read through Judges chapter 3 before, before today. If you have your Bible with you, I would encourage you to go ahead and open it to Judges chapter 3. It's uh, pretty close to the beginning of the Bible um, And this is one of those, this is one of those chapters. um, Like, can I get, who read this this week? Can I just get a show of hands? Okay. This is one of those chapters in the Bible where you read it and you're like, what in the world is going on here? Right? Um, And if you have, if you didn't read it before you came and we read it today, you're going to wonder what in the world is going on here today. Um, Which is why I'm really glad that you're here. I love the way Becky talked about uh, the intentionality of who God is. Because like she said, I believe that the people that are here today are the ones that needed to be here. God has assembled you here for a reason. You're not here by accident. You're here on purpose to hear what God has for you in the midst of this. You're here on purpose to praise God through the time that we have together um, today. One of the things that we want to do as a as a church leadership is we want to teach you how to read the Bible. And that sounds kind of strange. But when we read through a book, a chapter like Judges chapter three, we're wondering what we're supposed to do with it. What is, what does this mean? Like, I, I just have no frame of reference for the stories. And if, if you've read Judges before, you know what I'm about to say is true. If you haven't read Judges before, it only gets worse the level of chaos, death, and destruction with every passing chapter only ratchets up to a fevered pace, and it forces us to ask the question, what like, what do we do with this? So, so we want to teach you how to read the Bible, and if you've been here, you've heard me talk about First Corinthians 10 before. I'm just going to read it with you. If you're in the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app, all of these verses are in there. You can go back and, and read this later, but this is 1 Corinthians 10 Paul is, Paul is giving the, the church at Corinth a set of instructions. And what he's doing is he's looking back to the history of the Jewish people. And what he's saying is all of these things that the that Jews did 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, like there's a reason that that took place. All of their obedience and their disobedience. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, these things, that's all of those things, like when they wandered through the desert and they weren't obedient and all those things, these things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave the evil things they did or worship idols as some of them did. So what Paul's doing is he's drawing their attention to the Old Testament, specifically to the story of Moses and the Israelites as they wandered through the desert, and, and maybe they're reading their Bibles, right? They're reading their scriptures, and they're like, why is this here? What's going on? So Paul's telling them. He's saying, these things are a warning to you. And then in verse 11, he says this, these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So again, if If the people in Corinth thought they were living at the end of the age, I had someone tell me this this morning. I think we're living in the end times. And the answer to that question is yes. 2,000 years later, we are still living in the end times. So when we read the Old Testament, and when we read the New Testament for that matter, but in particular, when we read the Old Testament, there's something going on. God is telling us something. And it's, it's kind of our job, our role and responsibility to, to unearth what that is. Because we have crazy stories like the ones that we're going um, to read today. A couple of reminders. Judges is not linear. These things aren't all happening one after the other. Many of them are happening at the exact same time. And we don't necessarily get that sense. Um, but this is not a linear text. And then secondly, when we read the word Judges... My guess is the image that immediately comes into your mind is, is either a courtroom or someone in black robes sitting behind a pedestal with a hammer, right, with a gavel. That's probably what we think of when we hear the word judge, and that is not, um, that's not what we're talking about. These judges have nothing to do with a courtroom. And as we'll read through, these, um, each of these judges, there's one female, um, two if you count J.L., but each of these judges are local and regionalized militaristic tribal chieftains. Okay, they're just people with, people with power that God has given them and God is using them to deliver his people. Let's read Judges 3, 1 to 6 uh, together. And again, I would love for you to follow along with me. These are the nations that the Lord left in the land to test the Israelites who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. He did this to teach warfare to generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. These are the nations, the Philistines, those living under the five Philistine rulers, all the Canaanites, all the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the mountains of Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. These people were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commands the Lord had given to their ancestors through Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and they intermarried with them. Israelite sons married their daughters, and Israelite daughters were given in marriage to their sons, and the Israelites served their gods. So this is really important. If we remember back to last week when we talked about this, God's people were told to go into Canaan, and they were told to wipe everyone out. And again, like that causes ethical and moral problems for us because we don't understand what was really taking place. These were wicked people who for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years had experienced mercy and grace from God to repent of their sins. Essentially, to stop burning babies in the fire. And when they didn't do that, we're gonna talk about this in a minute, God sends his people in to wield the sword. We talk about that in Romans chapter 13, The government has the authority to wield the sword and he doesn't wield it in vain. God has given the Israelites authority to act in his name to wipe out these people and they don't. Left them there to test them. Would they obey? Are they going to listen to me? He left them to teach them because many of these Israelites had no experience in battle. And see, God knows that in the future, they're going to be fighting these nations for generation after generation and generation and generation. So he has to teach them how to fight. He has to teach them how to be soldiers. He has to teach them how to wield weapons to defeat the enemies that are constantly going to attack. When I was thinking about this over the past couple weeks and thinking about what, what Paul wrote in First Corinthians 10, this is, this is an example. This is a warning. So, so again, like, what do we take from this? This is what I wrote down. God's people must take responsibility and ownership from what, for what they've been given. See, when they walked into the promised land, there were houses they didn't build. Do you remember this from Deuteronomy 6? There were houses they didn't build, cisterns they didn't dig, crops they never planted. They were given an opportunity to start fresh, and everything was given to them. And and the question is, are they going to take ownership of that? Are they going to, to see what the gift that they have been given, and are they going to build upon it? This week, the Bible reading plan that we're doing as a church is all about spiritual responsibility. See, when, when we accept that Jesus has died for our sins, we are we're trusting in the finished work of the cross. Like, what Jesus did is enough. It's not Jesus plus anything else. And at the same time, we have the responsibility to take responsibility for our faith. I have the responsibility to learn and grow in my relationship with God. Every single one of you does. We have to take this responsibility the people are handed this perfect world and that ought to sound a lot like Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 where everything God made was good and prepared for them. And, and how do they do? Are they any better? Like we would think several thousand years later after the Garden of Eden that when the people are handed like 2.0, right, Earth 2.0, that they would do better. Well, how do they do? It says they lived among the people, they intermarried them, and they served their gods. So essentially, they failed. Just like Adam. Just like Eve. And honestly, it's, in a lot of ways, that's just like us. See, we, we have this mindset that, that we are so much more educated than the people who lived 2,000 years ago. We are so much more educated than the people who lived 4,000 years ago. And if we could just get a restart, if we could bring ourselves to get a restart, like we think we would do better. Well, how's that going in our society? We have access to more information than at any point in history. How, how are we doing? We're failing miserably. So this is, uh, we're gonna read uh, starting in verse seven. So this is, this is just what I've called cycle one in today's text judges chapter 3 verses 7 to 12. the israelites did evil in in the lord's sight they forgot about the lord their god and they served the images of baal and the asherah poles then the lord burned with anger against israel and he turned them over to i'm going to have struggle with this name so give me a second he turned them over to king Cushan rishathame of aram nehara okay i'm not even gonna try that um And the Israelites served Cushan, rishathaim for eight years. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Canez. The spirit of the Lord came upon them, and he became Israel's judge. He went to war against King Cushan, we're just going to stop there, of Aram, And the Lord gave Othniel victory over him. So there was peace in the land for 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So here's what's going on. The people have forgotten about the Lord. They've done evil in the Lord's Lord's sight, in the Lord's mind. They serve the images of Baal and Asherah poles. And this is one of those things where we ought to pause and we need to figure out what that means. Because if we're kind of just reading through this text, they serve the images of Baal, they serve the images of poles. Like that means nothing to us. So when we see God's response, because we don't understand what's actually going on, we're tempted to see God's response and be like, "God, why like why are you getting so worked up about this? What does that mean they served?" the Baals, the images of Baal. What does that mean that they served the Asherah poles? This is where it gets a little, you know, gets a little PG-13. I threw a little warning out there earlier this week on Facebook. Maybe you're not on Facebook. If you read through the book of Judges, you'll see that this is very quickly going to go to an R rating. And we're just going to talk about what the text says. So what's going on? Well, Baal was a fertility god. And in order to worship the images of Baal, what you did was you offered sacrifices of sheep and bulls. You also offered up your children as sacrifice, usually the firstborn. So that's what's going on. So when it says that they served the images of Baal, it wasn't like they were just walking by, like walking down the same street of another religion. And kind of being like, oh, you know, we're going to be tolerant of that. We want to let them in our city. We're going to do all these things. No, the Israelites were participating in this. The Israelites were guilty of worshiping these gods. They were guilty. They were guilty of child sacrifice. They're guilty. Asherah poles. Asherah was also a fertility goddess. Man, they had a lot of fertility gods and goddesses at this time in history and she was worshiped near trees and poles through ritualistic sex and religious prostitution. So again, this isn't just like another brand of religion. You know, well, as long as they keep to themselves, like they can worship whoever they want to, right? Isn't that that what our culture tells us? The Israelites weren't weren't just tolerating that, they were participating in that actively participating. And like we talked about last week, who you serve leads to what you do. So, the, so God's people came into the promised land and they saw all of these things taking place. And I don't remember, I'm going to paraphrase what Becky said. because I don't, She said it way better than I will. Like they knew what God's plan was for them and they fell for the, the rituals and the culture of the day. They saw this other thing that were taking place that was taking place, and they were kind of like, ritualistic sex? That sounds pretty good. Like, that sounds like a good deal. And they're giving into that because because the culture that they had decided to try and just get along with began to impact and affect their very worship. They began to bring these things in, and we're going to talk more about this later in the book, but there is a way to be right in your own eyes and do evil in God's sight. So we live in this space where where we think that if everybody just did whatever they wanted to, like they would all make the right decision. Again, I ask you, how's that working out for our culture? See, what's right in our eyes isn't always right in the sight of God. And we're seeing this, this breakdown of this of the Israelites we're seeing this breakdown of Jewish culture right here before us and God's anger and he turns them over to this king cushion. essentially it says he sold them off he gave them over and and the thing that we have to recognize is our choices are not without consequence when's the last time you faced a consequence of your choice it may have been a while since anything bad actually happened to you because of your choices. And then again, it may have been yesterday. But eventually, our choices are not without consequences. And what God is doing is he's allowing his people free will. He's allowing them to make their choice. And sin is real and so are its consequences. See, when God brings them into the promised land and he gives them all these things, like he's setting before them life and death. And boy, didn't we talk about that a lot in our How the Bible Works series when we went through the Old, the Old Testament. God is constantly giving his people a choice. And each one of us are in the midst of that. We constantly have a choice. Do I want to be obedient or not obedient? Do I want to be obedient or not obedient? I know what God wants me to do. I want to do something else. And the consequences for this, for these people in this time, are pretty heavy. God uses nations to judge nations. So it's kind of interesting. We started this little, this little book off with God using Israel to judge all of the nations around them. Right? They're wicked people. So, so I'm going to send you in and I'm gonna, you're going to be my arm. You're going to be my sword. Go and judge them. And now something interesting starts to happen. God's people really aren't that different from the Canaanites. Do you notice that? They just, they, just re, they just go right along with what the Canaanites are doing. So God, because God uses nations to judge other nations, he's like, fine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand like your consequences, I'm going to hand you over to these other nations. These aren't just mean nations doing bad things. We read, we read these stories, and especially when we get later into the Old Testament when we read about the Babylonian captivity, and we're so tempted to think, oh, the poor Israelites, the Babylonians came in. Why'd that happen? Why would God let that happen? Because they're sinful people who are sacrificing children. That's what's going on in this text. The people cried out, and God raises up judges. And the first of those is Ophniel. He has a really cool name. His, his, his name means a force of strength. Like, I wish, that, I wish that that's what John meant, was a force of strength. Ophniel. One of the things when we read scripture, um, we learn a lot about these characters. This isn't the first time Othniel is mentioned. He's actually mentioned in Joshua, uh, chapter 15, verses 13 to 19, and then earlier in the book of Judges. Um, Caleb, as they're, invading the, as they're invading the promised land, as they're invading Canaan, comes up on this town of Debir. And like in true awesome father mode, he says, whoever takes that town can marry my daughter. So think about that for a minute. Whoever takes that that town can marry my daughter. And Othniel's the dude. He goes in and he takes the town and he gets Caleb's daughter. It says he's filled with the Spirit and he delivered the people. And notice that he's not someone that intermarried. See, this is an opportunity for us to learn how to read the Bible. Like all of these Israelite people are giving their children in marriage to the people of Canaan. And yet here's this one guy. Othniel, who who doesn't intermarry. And as we read through the book of Judges, we're going to see that of all of the judges, I know you think because you went to, if you went to Sunday school when you were a child, I know you think that Samson is the best judge of all. In fact, he's the worst. You should read the story. Othniel is pretty much like, if there's an excellent judge, it's pretty much Othniel. And it only starts going downhill from there. So we would think, right? Othniel delivers the people. God uses Othniel to deliver the people. And we would think after what they just experienced, we would think that the Israelites are going to repent of their sin, right? They're going to do what they're supposed to do. They're going to be obedient to God. But I wonder, um, what do you think happens next? Here is, um, here's the text. Verse 12, once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. So we talked about this last week. There's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is, I'm sorry I got caught. That's what your kids say. That's what I say. I'm sorry I got caught. Godly sorrow is something else. Godly sorrow actually leads to repentance. It means there's a difference in the lives of people who are truly sorrowful in their relationship with God. Yesterday at our team train, I read from Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 74 to 75, and it says this, We've been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. See, we've been delivered to live in holiness, That's what the people were supposed to get from this little sojourn into chaos, death, and destruction. God was going to deliver them by Othniel, and what they were supposed to do is be obedient to God. That was was the plan. But because they're wicked people, they don't. And what's so amazing is, is what God's response is, even to worldly sorrow. He loves them. Like, isn't that strange? See, we would think that, that if we really weren't sorry, we would think that God wouldn't love us. Well, how does God love them? He sends them judges to restore them, to rescue them, to deliver them. Charles Spurgeon says this, God never allows his people to sin successfully. Their sin will either destroy them or invite God's judgment. See how that works? I wonder how many of us have experienced that. God giving us free will to sin. And doesn't that sin just destroy you? Conviction, judgment, and consequences are gifts of a loving God because they allow, they allow he is revealed as kind and merciful. See, when we face, con- when we face conviction, What's really happening is God is not heaping this guilt and shame on us so that we would live in that space, so that we would wallow in that space. He is convicting us so that we would turn to him. So we can see in him that he wants to deliver us. And one of the things that I hope you are able to see at some point in your life is that conviction from God is a good thing. It's meant to save you. It's meant to deliver you. And if you are one who is, who is racked with guilt and shame because of that conviction, Jesus has a better story for you. And if, if you don't know what that means, I would, like, I would love to talk to you about that. How to be free from that guilt and shame. We talked about this in our staff meeting last week. But some people want to judge God for this. Maybe you've, maybe you've heard this. Why does God let wicked people do wicked things? Have you ever heard a question like that or, or, or had someone ask you something like that? Like, why does God allow wicked people to do wicked things? And then they ask also the next question, which is, like, why does God do wicked things? So on one hand, people ask the question, why would God let, let the Canaanites burn babies in the fire? And then when God judges them, do you know what people do? What? Like, why does God have to be so mean? Do you see how those two things are very difficult to reconcile together? Like, you can't have them both. And, and what Cody said is, is basically this. In this reality, God is, God is darned if he does and darned if he doesn't. And it's because we don't understand who God is. It's because we don't understand the holiness that God truly has for us. We don't understand how free will works. God is a righteous Judge, let's, uh, let's continue. You're going to like this section of the book if you haven't read it yet. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and the Amalekites as allies. Then he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. Again, notice this is worldly sorrow and God delivers his people. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it under his, to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. You're allowed to laugh at that. That's kind of humorous. Like, this is in here on purpose. After delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. But when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back, he came to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. So the king commanded his servants, be quiet, and he sent them all out of the room. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in the cool upstairs room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. As King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger, and the king's bowels emptied. You should read the Bible more. (laughs) Then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. After Ehud was gone, the king's servants returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room, so they waited. But when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. And when they opened the doors, they found their master dead on the floor. While the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped, passing the stone idols on his way to Syria. When he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud sounded a call to arms, and he led a band of Israelites down from the hills. "'Follow me,' he said, "'for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy.'" So they followed him, and the Israelites took control of the shallow crossings of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. They attacked the Moabites and killed about 10,000 of their strongest and most able-bodied warriors. Not one of them escaped, so Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and there was peace in the land for 80 years. So much going on here. The Israelites do evil. God raises up Ehud. He's a Benjamite. This is where we need to do a little bit of reading. That means son of my right hand. That's what Benjamin means. So son of my right hand. The The Benjamites were known for being ambidextrous. They could use both their right hand or their left hand. Have you ever known anyone like that? Our son John used to be ambidextrous. And one time we were driving somewhere. I don't know if he can still do this. One time we were driving somewhere and he was showing that to me. And then what he did was he had had put a pencil in each hand and he would sign his name with both hands at the exact same time. It was like, that's impressive. That requires a lot of skill. So these Benjamites were known for being ambidextrous, right-hand or left-hand. Most people of this day were right-handed. So when they checked this judge, they didn't look where a left-handed person would put a sword. But here's the thing, the way that this is written in Hebrew, it could also mean that he was a man handicapped in the right hand. I love the way Warren Wiersbe writes this. He says, A solitary man with a lame right hand couldn't be much of a threat to a powerful king. So he uses his left hand, and with a dagger strapped to his right side, he kills King Eglon. I'm going to read this again. The dagger went in so deep... That the handle disappeared between beneath the king's fat, so Ehud did not pull out the dagger and the king's bowels emptied. Like, that's a great coffee cup verse, isn't it? <sighs> I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to read the Bible. I want to encourage you to spend time in Scripture. Fall in love. With what's going on here because all like all of these details all of these details are here for a reason they're here for a purpose I think when we read through this story we think about Ehud we see that God uses unexpected people in unexpected ways see what's starting to happen as we as we go through the book of Judges and we and we go through the rest of the Old Testament to where we get to Jesus we see that God is perpetually using unexpected people in unexpected ways, which is why by the time we get to Jesus in the Gospels, the people don't believe he's the Messiah because all of, all of their thoughts and all of their understandings about who Jesus was supposed to be are completely overturned by the real Jesus. So what, what's happening here is, is God is planting these seeds in the Old Testament and encouraging us as people who are going to read it, like God doesn't do what you expect he's going to do. He doesn't act in ways that you think he's going to act. And for us as Christians, it's really easy for us to put God in a box, isn't it? For us to think that God only does these things. But when we read through the Bible, what we see is not a God who only does these things. He's God, he does whatever he wants to including using a left-handed man to judge other nations. And whether his, his hand was lame or not, it was unexpected. Notice at the end of that little section that the people united and they were delivered. This is something we're not going to see very much of. We're not going to see a united people. We're going to typically see one judge delivering everyone. And then here is verse 31. After Ehud Shamgar, son of Anath, was, Anath rescued Israel. He once killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. It's getting bloody. Like, I don't know if you would know what an ox goad is, but essentially it's a long stick with a piece of metal on one end to like poke the ox to get it to go. And, this dude killed 600 people with one of those. These are, these are strong people. But what's kind of interesting is we don't, we don't know a lot about this person. And next week when we talk about chapter 4, um, it's almost like the author of Judges skips over Shamgar. He begins chapter 4 with, after Ehud's death, so Shamgar is kind of like this, like who is he? We don't know much about him in the story. So, did a little bit of research because I'm a nerd like that. Um, Anath was the name of a Canaanite warrior goddess. So when it says he was the son of Anath, what that means is he was kind of like her. So, so they had this warrior goddess that the Canaanites worshipped, and this guy is kind of like her. He follows, um, he follows her. He's a type of of her. If you're old enough to remember the movie, Conan the Barbarian, like think of that when it comes to Shamgar. And God uses him to destroy the Philistines. We don't see anywhere in Shamgar's story that the people cried out to God. We don't see anywhere in Shamgar's story that he was sent by God. But the question is, did the people even know that they were actually rescued by this person without him just being mentioned in here. And as I think about this whole chapter and the chaos, death, and destruction that we're starting to see and is becoming manifest in the lives of the the people, what's for us? So I teach a class at Summit and every one of my assignments has Bible reading involved in it. And what I ask our students to do is, is tell me three things. What does it say? What does it mean? And what do I do with it? What does it say? What does it mean? What do I do with it? So we kind of ask that question. We read through Judges chapter 3 and we ask this question. What does it say? What does it mean? And what do I do with it? One of the things I think of is we have to use what we've got. See, God has individually called every single one of us to serve, to function within God's kingdom. And he wants us to use what we got. For Ehud, it's building a dagger. Don't build a dagger, don't go assassinate anyone. But he's using what he has. Shamgar, what does he have? An ox goad. See, there would be some people, when Shamgar, if, if Shamgar were to show up with the ox goad, and he were to say, I'm here to deliver the Israelites, there are going to be some people that are going to be like, you're going to need more than that. You're going to need something different. Well, wait till we get to the story of Samson and see the havoc that he wreaks with the jawbone of a donkey. See, God wants us to use what we have. God has specifically equipped every single one of us in this room to serve and proclaim him in a way that's suitable for you. God wants you to be you. Your testimony, your story, your relationship with God is your testimony, your story, and your relationship with God. It's not mine. We don't have the same story. God is calling you to use what you have and proclaim him. A few days ago, I was reading through uh, Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16. And again, this is in the version app. You can read that later. But in Matthew 20, Jesus tells this parable of the vineyard workers. And it's about this guy who needs workers for his vineyard. And he goes out at the beginning of the day and then kind of throughout the whole day. And he hires people to come and work in his vineyard. And at the end of the day, he starts to pay them. And it's really kind of weird, like he pays the last people first, and then he pays the people who started last the same amount of money that he pays the people that started at the beginning of the day. Okay, that's not socialism. Jesus is trying to teach us something. As I'm I'm reading through this story, and I'm reflecting on something that a friend of mine had written about it, I was reminded of the individualized unequal love of God in my life. See, some of us have this mindset that God loves everyone equally. And I would challenge you that he doesn't love everyone equally. He loves everyone individually. See, God knows how to love me best. God knows how to love you best. And if you're kind of like wrestling with that a little bit, Parents and grandparents, this will make sense to you. Teachers, this will make sense to you. You don't love your children equally. You love your children individually. You know who they are. You know their gifts, their talents, their skills. You know how they respond to certain kinds of love that your other children or other students or grandchildren, grandchildren. You like you know how they operate, and this is how God loves us. He loves us in unique ways. A couple, I posted something about that, and a few days after that, um, Brad Gross, maybe you know Brad Gross, posted something. He said, the other day I read a quote that said, God doesn't love everyone equally. He loves everyone individually, and suddenly everything made a little more sense. My blessings are custom made for me and me alone. And I wonder what it would be like for us as people who are following Christ, for us to recognize that the blessings we have were made for us. If we could stop being jealous of what other people have, or what other people get, or what other people do, and we could recognize that God has equipped us to be us, to serve Him in ways that are unique. To us, if if we could grasp that as a church, and not just Westway, but if we could grasp that as a community of churches in Scotts Bluff, that God has uniquely wired us to be us, do you have any idea how effective we would communicate the gospel in the places that we work? How effectively we would communicate the gospel in our schools? How effectively we would communicate the Gospels in our neighborhoods. Because I'm not in your neighborhood and you're not in mine. You are in your place for a reason. God has equipped you for a reason. God individually loves us. And he calls us to make an individual response. He calls us to make a personalized response. And each one of us has a choice. Like we are, in a lot of ways, like we're no different than the Israelites. We have this choice that's been set before us every single day, life or death, obedience or disobedience. How are we going to respond? What are we going to do with that? No one can make that choice for you. You have to make it. And one of the things that is one of my favorite things about being a pastor is, is seeing people Seeing people choose to be obedient to God, I love I love seeing that happen. Because sometimes it's it's a it's a battle. In fact, often it's a battle. I wanna I wanna invite my friend um, John Walker up here for a second. Hi. Good job. Good job on the mic. Thanks. So, John and his family have been here for about two years at Westway Christian Church. And a little longer than that. I'm actually, almost about three. three. About three. Okay. Um, we're just going to do this. John and his family have been here for about three years at Westway Christian Church. And they've been involved on Sunday morning, got connected in our Thursday night small group. And have just been just so honored to get to know them both and hear their story. And today John is here. Um, he wants to be baptized into Jesus. Yep. So John, why, why do you want to be baptized? Um, I've just taken an incredible journey the last month and God's been with me the entire way and I just am ready to fully commit. Awesome. Um, John, do you believe that you are a sinner? Yes, I do. Do you believe that Jesus has died for your sins? Yes, I do. And are you ready to live your life for him for the rest of your life? Yes, I am. Awesome. Just repeat after me. I believe. I believe. That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Christ. The son of the living God. The son of the living God. So John, based upon your confession of faith, we're going to go to the back and we're going to do a baptism during this next song. Um, let's, will you pray with me? God, we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to gather here today. We're thankful for, um, for, the, for the examples shown to us of, of not just obedience in Scripture, but in disobedience, because we see when people are disobedient, your response is to love us. Your response is to allow us to be convicted to deal with the fruit and the consequences of our sin. And I pray for those who are in the room today or who are are watching online that they would see that they have a choice. They have a choice. Just ask that you would be with John and his family in the next days, weeks, months, and years as he lives his life for you. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen.